Welcome to MMU, Murdered, Missing, Unsolved. Across this series of episodes, I talk to the first British journalist to arrive at the scene of what became the most infamous missing person case of a generation, Madeleine McCann. The McCanns had no idea what they were walking into, what holiday they were booking. From his base in southern Spain, I discussed the case with author John Clark, who guides us through his search for the monster at the dark heart of this tragic crime. I needed to understand what created this monster and how he got away with it. Madeleine McCann, the chief suspect. So Christian Bruckner, when did the door really open for you in relation to this prime suspect in the Maddie McCann case? It certainly happened for me to really understand exactly who this guy was when I got a phone call from one of the reporters working in Prada Luge for the Mirror. He called up and said they'd worked out that when Bruckner was in prison in Portugal for stealing fuel, he had been in prison with, at the time, his flatmate, a guy called Michael Meacher Tatchell. In fact, he called Michael Tatchell. We didn't know he was called Meacher then, but his name was Michael Tatchell. Funny story, I was sitting on my bed reading a book all about this town called Orgiva. And uh, it's a sort of alternative community, a bit like the Glastonbury of Spain, tucked away in the hills between Granada and the sea. And it's very sort of deep valleys and high mountains, kind of running up to the Sierra Nevada mountains, snow-capped mountains. I'm reading this book about Orgiva and all the quirky things that happened there by an English writer, actually. It's quite a funny book. And we were thinking about serializing it in the newspaper at the time. So I get a phone call from Martin at the Mirror and he says, John, I need you to go to somewhere called Orgiva. Orgiva, Orgiva. And I'm like, mate, it's it's Orgiva. It's like a place I know really well because the Olive Press started there. We actually launched from this town and we knew the town pretty well. He said, well, I need you to go to Orgiva. And I'm like, what? Why? And, it, and then he explained that this guy, Michael Tatchell, had been in prison for eight months with Bruckner, Christian Bruckner, and that he was living, he believed, in Orgiva. And I was like, no way. You can't, won't believe. It. I'm just literally sitting here reading a book about Orgiva. It's so, so random. That's such a coincidence. So he said, well, look, how far is it? I said, well, it's probably about three hours for me. He said, well, can you get there? Can you go and see if you can track this guy down? Yeah, of course. Fine. No problem. I looked at the Facebook page before I left. On this Facebook page, there's a guy, tattooed guy with like a skull tattoo on his neck. And he's basically staring at the camera. His nose is pierced. His nipples are pierced. And he's got his finger up like that, <laughs> staring at, at the camera. At that stage, you figured he wasn't a member of the establishment. His credit record wasn't perhaps pristine. And, and he may have been living slightly off the grid. Strange coincidence. You were drawn to the area reading the book and you were being asked to go to the area by the mirror to investigate this guy who had been in jail with Bruckner. They worked out that Christian had been in prison in 2006 and most of the year, eight months from April. He and uh, and this guy Tatchell had been caught stealing fuel from cars and vans and lorries in Lagos and Portimao and various towns around the Algarve. And he'd been caught red-handed late at night, the two of them. And they'd been slapped straight in prison because they wouldn't give them any address. They refused to give up the yellow house that they were living at in Prada Luge. As you know, they had this yellow house just outside Prada Luge. Christian Bruckner obviously didn't want to give his address because he knew what was inside the house. And of course, Meacher, Michael Tatchell, also knew exactly what was inside the house. And what there was, was lots and lots of things that were stolen, as we'll, we'll come into that later. But they knew that they couldn't give an address. So they said they'd met a few weeks earlier. They were camping in a car park next to each other in their vans and just got sort of chatting and became pally. That's where they ended up doing this fuel theft thing. They were just doing it as a pastime to get 
enough fuel for themselves and, you know, to sell on to a couple of their pals, their new age pals, their band life of pals. What was interesting was that all the pack that were based in Pradeluge, this is some weeks later now, all the pack that were still there from the mail, Arthur from the mail, you've got Sarah from the Sun, Martin at the Mirror, and I forget who's on for the Telegraph. It was a long drive for them to get all the way to Spain, to Andalusia. And of course, it was in COVID and they just figured it'd be easier to ask John to, to, you know, could I go up and have a look? So it was great. So I was kind of put on from all the papers to go and do this mission, to go and locate this kind of lunatic with his finger up and his tattoos and nipples pierced. I kind of duly got on the road, slightly fearing that it wasn't going to be the easiest store knock, if indeed I could even find him. And the first thing I noticed when I stopped for a coffee on route was that he actually left in 2016. I don't think there was much chance he was going to be there. But uh, anyway, you always go and you never know, do you? And you might find some good friends of his. And so I got there and um, it was, again, it was one of these times where Orkiva was almost in semi-lockdown and everyone was in masks if you were allowed out and there were police were everywhere and making sure that people were behaving themselves and not doing anything. Somebody said, look, if you're trying to find someone like this, this kind of new age traveler, there's only one place to find him and that's the metal bar. And I was like, Christ, that rings a bell. We used to have an office in Orkiva all the years ago. And I remember there was this bar on the edge of town where you didn't dare go unless you had at least your nose pierced. It was where, you know, you had dogs tied up all around the area and there were lots of dreadlocks. And it was the place where all the local hippies and crusties and metlers and punks all hung out. You've not been anywhere like it, Donald. It's a kind of crazy capital of Spain. It sounds like something out of Mad Max, the movie. Yeah, it is. And this but metal bar really is a bit like Mad Max. I'm not going to do these guys down because a lot of them are really decent guys. And uh, anyway, I got to the metal bar and it was actually amazingly open. And there were quite a few people sort of outside smoking weed and, you know, and just chilling out. And there were indeed lots of dogs outside. And I went in and chatted to the barman who was Spanish and he was actually the owner and a really nice bloke and friendly. And everyone inside was pretty friendly. I got a coffee, got some breakfast. And uh, I just said, look, do you know this guy? And I kind of just showed him a picture on the phone. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's Misha. All right. Okay. So, you know, him. he says, yeah, Misha, yeah, he comes every year. He lived here for years. Lovely guy. Couldn't be nicer. Really sweet guy, sweetheart, you know, funny. I'm like, okay, great. That's nice to know. He said, well, he lived with an English girl called Emma, who was an artist. And I was like, okay, and any more clues? And he couldn't really give me any more clues. I sort of hung around a little bit and chatted a few more people. And eventually someone else came in and said, yeah, yeah, he was here at Christmas. He was over at Christmas with his kids and his wife or his new girlfriend. I was like, okay, right. Interesting. Where was he staying? He said, oh, I think he was staying down near Emma's place. And I was like, oh, well, where's Emma's? He said, oh, that's down near Tablonis, Sigaronis. Okay. And this was one of these three new age settlements they've got around the town. And I thought, that's interesting. So he's at Sigaronis. That would figure that would be the place to go. I kind of got on the road and drove down. I should explain, Donald, this is an unusual town where you have around 5,000 people living in Orkiva. And then you have about 1,500 people living in three new age settlements that are built in the mountains around Orkiva. One of them you can't get to by car at all. You've got to park your car like, you know, half a mile away and walk up, you know, into the mountains. So I just sort of headed down to this place. Sigaronis was one of them. But it's a big area. I mean, you're looking at 10 kilometers square. Where it like goes all the way down the river. It's a sort of massive, a huge area. So it's a kind of like needle in a haystack. Nobody could tell me either where Christian Bruckner or Misha Tatchner lived or indeed where Emma lived. And I'm like, Emma, she's an artist. Everyone knows she's been here for years. They just shrugged their shoulders. You know, the Spanish just, just don't give a shit. You know, they weren't interested and they really didn't mix with that community and they didn't want anything to do with it. And no one knew where Emma lived. It's about sort of midday at one o'clock now. And I'm thinking, Christ, this is, this is not great. I thought I sat in the car and I looked, I got his Facebook page page up. And I went through his photos. He's got quite a lot of photos, quite a lot of friends. And there's one particular photo where he's clearly standing in a very typical sort of shack. It's 
Spanish style veranda. I didn't notice that he's standing in front of three huge dope plants, like massive, as tall as him almost. But what I'm noticing is that in the background, you can see these hills, this sort of line of hills. In the middle of the hills, there's a sort of fire break right the way through the middle of it. I look at that and I think, that's interesting. I look up. And there's, there's the same line of hills with the same fire break. Here you are geographically tracking. I mean, this is like FBI, CIA looking for Osama bin Laden and you're looking for Misha Bruckner's pal and, or more likely Emma, his former girlfriend. And so tracking them, this is the photograph. These are the hills. This is the fire line. Okay, where is he? I kind of worked out that I was about three or 400 meters above where this picture was taken. I think the detectives at Scotland Yard would be proud of me. I then worked out if I walked down this track and then left a bit, I was more or less at Emma's house. I look in and there's a sort of new age sort of settlement almost. And this is kind of very attractive hippie girl tending plants in the boiling hot heat. And I said, oh, um, do you know Emma? And she's like, oh, I thought ring, rings a bell, but you better come in and talk to um, the owner of this plot. So I went in and it turned out it was, um, what's his name from Goodbye to All That, the famous book, uh, Robert Graves' grandson. And I knew he lived around Orkiburg because he'd always lived there and he's quite a free spirit, his grandson. So I went in and <laughs> he comes out, actually, he wasn't particularly friendly. I've always wanted to meet him because, you know, see, the family are interesting. The, the son, Thomas Graves, is, a, is a, wrote a brilliant book about Mallorca and music. And of course, Robert Graves was brilliant. I, Claudius, and goodbye to all that. And his grandson is a clearly an interesting fellow free spirit. But he just said, yeah, Emma just lives up there. That's her house there. So I kind of walked down towards Emma's house. Outside, as I got there, were two very willowy teenage girls. I'd say probably 18, 19. I said, hi, is, is Emma here? She said, oh, that's my mum. Come in. <laughs> so like, she opened the door, walked in and walked me through. It's like, yeah, she's sitting in the back garden. She's here. This isn't normally the invite which reporters get. You know, you know it's like, like normally oh. what you get on a doorstep. No, and, and so there I was walking through the house towards the back garden. And it's actually a really nice house, in fact, very Andalusian style. And, and I walked out onto the veranda and there's Emma and she's sitting with a guy called Ben, who's another local expat, English expat. They're drinking cider, actually. It's about four o'clock, I guess, by this time. And it's boiling hot, but they're drinking cider in the shade in the garden, smoking roll-ups, getting into spirit. And then suddenly I'm introduced. Hi, I'm John from the Olive Press. You remember me? And, you know, I've been here for years. And they're like, yeah, of course, we know the Olive Press. Yeah, we get it in the town. It's still available in the town. And yeah, yeah we read it. And so, you know, we just got chatting. Like any good journalist, Donald, you've done it for years. You break the ice. It must have been a good 15, 20 minutes before I even brought up her ex-boyfriend. By the way, do you, you know, do you know this guy, Michael Tatchell? And she says, yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's my ex-boyfriend. He's a bit of a bit of a fruit loop. He's a bit mad, you know, but nice, like good free spirit, interesting, fun, but you know, has his foibles, etc. And he's actually back in Austria. He's got a new girlfriend, Cynthia, but we stay in touch. Okay. Well, did you know that Misha was a very good friend of Christian Bruckner? And she's like, oh my God, you're joking. I I had that feeling. So I've been watching the news. I've been reading all about it. been looking at the case and I really recognized that guy. It was like the penny was dropping for her. She's realizing that not only had she known this guy, but he'd been in her town, her village, probably in her house. Is this now drawing you in, you know, the start of a journey, which is going to get to a conclusion where you can decide this is our main man. It was like a light bulb moment. I tell you what, I mean, the first time when I was told go to Orkiva. Christian Bruckner, we'd found already established, had been hanging out in this place called Barao saint jean And it's a really weird place near Pradeluge. It's really alternative as well. And there's loads of little alternative places near Pradeluge, but this is one place. And he'd been here a lot and he had a girlfriend there and he was drug dealing there. Of course, he hung out with new age travelers and van lifers. I kept thinking all the time, I'm sure there's a connection. There's going to be a connection with Orkiva. There's got to be a connection with Orkiva. His lifestyle, everything about it suddenly fitted in. I thought, I know this area like the back of my hand. I know this area really well this is this is our dna 
So we kind of sat there and I was like, well, you know, how do I get hold of him? She said, well, I've got his number. I said, okay, can you call him? She said, I'll call him and tell you what, I'll, I'll get your number and I'll give him a call later. By this time I had a cider in my hand. I think I've been a second cider. We were getting on pretty well. And uh, I just said, look, can we, you know, why don't we call him now? So she said, she said, well, my battery's gone. She showed me it, the battery had gone in the phone, sure enough. So she said, well, I'll go and charge it. It took a full bloody half an hour before this phone even got up to 5%. She got his number out. She said, okay. I said, but it's like 5%, you know, it's probably going to go halfway through the call. Should we? She said, well, why don't you call on your phone? So I was like, okay, great. Got the phone out put the number in the phone and sat there with the phone on the table. This is a weird, the weirdest kind of interview I've ever done. I mean, actually probably not, but I mean, it's certainly one of them. We get on the loudspeaker and sure enough, Misha answers the phone. So Emma says, hi, Misha, how you going? Blah, blah. And she's oh yeah, I'm all right. You know, I've got the, I'm looking after the baby. And anyway, so we started chatting. She said, oh, I'm here with John from the Olive Press. You remember the Olive Press? And he's like, yeah, he actually remembered the Olive Press, which is great. So he'd obviously lived there for three years in Orkiva. So we just chatted away about that for a bit. And after about, I must be after about five minutes, I just sort of said, well, Misha, you were a friend of um, of Christian Bruckner's, weren't you? And he went like, oh, Christian, yeah, oh my God, you know, like bad man, really bad man, terrible, the things he did. And I was like, oh yeah, I mean, well, actually, I'm actually, uh, you know, investigating him. Yeah, well, I mean, he was bad news. Like, And then just on cue, there was a sort of loud scream in the background and his child <laughs> woke up. He said, oh, look, I've got to go. I'm going to have to go and get her back to sleep. He said, can you call me back in half an hour? And I was like, uh, yes, of course, Misha. Yes, of course. It's very unusual to make journalistic, to make a connection with somebody that close who was happy to talk to you. I should just point out, I just remembered now that before his daughter woke up, he said, and I know he did it. <laughs> and we looked at each other. And did it, obviously, meant that the only crime in town the whole world was talking about is... Madeleine McCann. So after one or two glasses of cider, some good conversation, anticipating your second call with this key connection, like seven steps removed from Kevin Bacon, one step removed from Christian Buckner. This is very close. Will he call back? Very, very nervous, you know, that he's not going to pick up. Very excited and nervous at the same time. And how soon afterwards did you get the second call? It was probably around 40 minutes. Normally someone says 30 minutes, you give them at least five minutes grace. I think we must have waited about 40 minutes. We definitely uh, waited a little bit longer than he'd asked and called up and he's picked up straight away. I couldn't believe it. I was really, really pleasantly surprised and he was in an equally good mood as before. Bear in mind, the last thing he said to us is I know he did it I kind of more or less straight away picked up on that I didn't want to like beat around the bush so I was like well you know what do you mean and he was like well I'm sure he took Maddie I'm certain of it he said he was always on the dark web he was always up late at night he talked about kidnapping children and what how much you can make by selling them in places like Morocco. What? He said, yeah, he talked about it. He said he wanted to be a millionaire by the age of 40. He wanted to retire. He, he wanted to make lots of money. And this was a really good way to make money. You can imagine Emma, a very nice woman, mother of two, listening to her ex-partner of some years telling her this. And we were like, well, you were living with him. I mean, he said, yeah, I was living with him. He was, you know, he became a friend. Obviously didn't do any of this stuff with him, but I know that he was a brilliant burglar. The house was full of stuff that he'd taken, cameras, watches, piles of passports as well. It must have been extraordinary to you to hear for the first time that Christian Bruckner is talking to a close friend about kidnapping children. And this is an advance. And people often talk about this. It's so Grimm's fairy tale. There's always a bogeyman kidnapping kids and then selling them on. To hear it in relation to the prime suspect in the Maddie McCann story is just extraordinary. It was absolute journalistic dynamite. And I 
I've never been in, in my whole career been in a position where I've heard such a key phrase or key three or four paragraphs uttered by someone that could have so much relevance to one of the biggest stories in history. Describe what he said again, just in granular detail. He basically said, I live with him. He was my best friend. I know what he got up to. He was a brilliant burglar. He was also up late at night on the dark web. I'm sure he was selling pictures and photos and he talked about kidnapping children and selling them. To utter that in this this sort of conversation on a phone, a loudspeaker with two witnesses next to me, who both like were equally stunned by this, scribbling it down in a shorthand note, just thinking, are we hearing this correctly? He, he was out regularly, he used to go out at night and he would sneak into apartments, break into apartments all around Pradeluge. He was a great climber and he would take anything he'd get his hands on. I genuinely don't think he knew that he was going off and potentially molesting children. I like to think that Misha's a pretty decent person. I mean, that's hard because Misha's telling you things that he knew about his best friend, inverted commas, Christian Bruckner. There's obviously some culpability. If that's your suspicions about your mate, they were the suspicions then. Then obviously the question is, why are you friends with them? But that's a matter for Misha. On the Christian story here, he was building a profile of somebody who appeared to have resources beyond that which was on the grid. This seemed to be a quite a sophisticated one offender, as you say, a brilliant burglar. And if you add the penchant and skill set to be a really good burglar into to being a child abuser and to being a sex offender, that's a really dangerous cocktail. What I'm trying to do, Donald, is to try and find the exact uh, things he said, because I think it's probably quite good if I read out what he told us on the phone. Which, is that going to be interesting? Or useful for you. Yes, you know, please, please. Yeah. Because I think we might as well get the exact phraseology of what he said. Misha said that he ended up staying in his house and camping in his garden. And he said they spent a lot of time together, had a lot of fun. He described Bruckner as being very smart and snappy in the way he dressed. And he would sometimes even wear a suit to go out and always wore good shoes. Then he talked about having these girlfriends, this German girlfriend who he said was at least 20 years older. He described him as definitely a strange character. Well, he was always quite criminal. He aimed to steal as much money as he could until he reached his dream of having 1 million euros. Then he said he would stop. He said he was an excellent burglar and he knew how to get into any home on any floor. It was easy there in Pradaloo, she said. He was always breaking into apartments in the area and bragging about it to me. He was a very good burglar and would easily climb up to first floor apartments when tourists were out. He particularly liked big football games when everyone would be out watching the games in bars during tournaments like the European Championships. He had a field day. He would climb up to the first floor and steal everything, lots of money, valuables and so many passports. He had a hiding place in the house for them in the rafters. It was his secret stash. And when we were taken to prison, he ordered a friend or a couple of friends to go into the house and clear it up. We carried on chatting and he later found out from two other friends of his that when they cleared out the house, this is Helga Bushing and Manfred Seaforth, that they'd found these videos that Bruckner had made on a video camera in which he was in. I'm reading direct quotes from the book here from our interview. He described him, it was as discovering at this point that he was a sick bastard, that it was a really horrible man. And apparently they said the video was of an elderly lady who was chained to a wooden post and she was being beaten and raped. There was another video of him attacking a second girl. They said, hey, Mitya, what should we do with these? I said, I really don't know. I don't want to see them. And I think they ended up burning them. The videos really upset him and that it came as a massive relief when he got to tell the police about it in 2019. He wanted to get it off his chest, clearly. He said, I told the police all about that story and I hope they verified it somehow. You've mentioned the so-called Yellow House a couple of times now, John. So for those who are new to the case, tell us how the Yellow House fits into the investigation. 
the Yellow House is a really, really quite a tiny little uh, holiday cottage, if you like. I mean, it's one bedroom, one bedroom, and you might have had a sofa bed, but it sits up a track, which is around, as the crow flies, around just under a kilometre from Pradaluge, from the Ocean Club and the centre of Pradaluge. From there, there's various footpaths that go down into Pradaluge, cross country, which he obviously knew very well and used regularly. And that was how he got in and out of town. And that was how he was able to burgle so many places and bring stuff back. But he lived there and who did he live there with? And what was the time frame, just to put it in context? He rented this from 1999 from a British owner. He rented it till 2006, so basically seven years. So by all accounts, 99, but it could have even been 98 and it could have been 2000, but till 2006 when they went to prison. And that was when his friends were actually, I, I worked out there were four people who went into the house to clear it out, to take stuff for him. They were Bernard Pirro, his mechanic friend who took various cars for him. Bernard uh, took them back to his uh, scrapyards and where he kept his cars, where he repaired his cars. There was Christian Post, his pal he lived by the lake with, and he took a whole bunch of boxes of all his, most of his sort of passports and valuables and videos and stuff. He then told a journalist in Germany, very good journalist actually, that he hadn't wanted to give a lot of this material to the Piros, where he was meant to leave it at the Piros house. But Elke and uh, Bernard Piro had two children, and one of them was, both of them quite young at the time, one of them was about nine. He just felt he didn't want to leave this material, which was clearly child abuse and animal pornography and all sorts of horrible things. So then there was also, as I said, Helga and Seaforth, Manfred Seaforth went in and they took whatever they had left. So there was various fuel they stole and they had they found a couple of other videos on the bits and bobs, which you now know is part of the case the police have against Christian Bruckner. So the Yellow House was significant. That's where Misha stayed and befriended and engaged with and got to know the predilections of Christian Bruckner. And crucially, in 2006, he goes to jail. Although he was on the radar of the authorities as a sex offender, one of 600, it seems to have slipped the authorities by that Bruckner was actually out at the time of the Maddie McCann disappearance and therefore should have been a prime suspect. I think by the time the police did eventually turn up at his yellow house, they claim, Gonzalo Amaral claims he went to the yellow house. He wasn't there. Now, he wasn't there because when he got out of prison, he'd lost everything. In fact, the next door neighbours are an English couple, an English lady and her daughter had gone in and completely cleaned the whole place out. And in fact, they'd filed a missing persons report wondering where Christian Bruckner had gone to. They were so concerned about this guy vanishing into thin air. You'd think the police might have said, well, yeah, actually, he's been taken at Her Majesty's pleasure. But they clearly, they didn't know what was going on and nobody had a clue. So they went and cleared up the house on the orders or the instructions of the, the owner of the house, the British owner. All the stuff they found in there, they wouldn't tell me, they were very prickly with me, actually, but um, they did tell Sandra to uh, Portuguese TV station, RTP, how they'd gone in and they'd cleared out loads of food from the fridge. They'd found there were basically rats and mice in there and they cleared out loads of rubbish and junk and they put it all in black bin liners and tipped them away and chucked them. And that was that. That was all the evidence that the police could have used to find against uh, Christian. Can you give us the timeline for Bruckner's movement, just to put it in brief context? Again, this is quite helpful that Misha, of course, helped me try and piece this together and other people who helped me piece this together that in May 2007, Misha had got out of prison and had gone back to Austria to see his family at Christmas and he'd come back to Portugal in the February of 2007 and Christian was by then not back in his house obviously as you know they changed the locks but he was living in vans in various beaches around Pradaluge and also in the village of Foral 
Misha told me that he didn't want to stay very long because he had, they both of them had fines to pay for stealing fuel. And he had a fine, I think, of 1,700 or 1,800 euros. And he knew that if you hung around in Portugal too long, chances are you'd get picked up. So he then went back to Spain where he moved into in the Alpujarras and Orcava, where they had the Dragon Festival in March that year in 2007. Now, I don't know whether Christian was at the Dragon Festival in March that year, end of March 2007. In April 2007, he does a dummy run, could be what we call a dummy run, taking a van journey all the way from Portugal all the way into Spain to Malaga to pick up some hitchhikers German hitchhikers who were doing this charity hitchhike to try and get all the way around Europe for a TV show for a competition now he volunteers with his van that Bernard Pirro has now got back it's Bernard and his son's van this VW the famous VW Christian Borisit drives all the way from Portugal to Malaga where he's seen in pictures and a video interestingly in the docks of Malaga picking this this three German hitchhikers up two men and a girl and driving them all the way down the Andalusian coastline, all the way, which is a long way, by the way, it's about three or four hour drive, and then into Mercia, and then north towards Castellon. He dropped them somewhere at the border of Almeria and Mercia, and they then carried on hitchhiking up. He then drives back. This is around eight. This is in April 2007. He presumably back in the Algarve or on the beaches or in Faral towards the end of April, beginning of May. This is something that the police had never really managed to completely work out. Recently, since the book came out, actually, I've been to various beaches that I know that he camped on. And the police took that van when they've impounded the van, the VW van from the Piros. They took the van down to one of these beaches in particular and took pictures of it with the door open to sort of suggest door of the van open empty, just chuck someone in the van and drive off. And I think the police think that he was on one of these beaches on the night that Madeleine went missing. The priority here is in terms of one, he was living kind of off the grid, under the radar, with his VW van, in and around Praia de Luge. And here you had a sex offender who had a fantasy about becoming a millionaire, about selling and trafficking kids, who it seemed may have done a dummy run. Now that is building up quite a case. He had the desire to do this. He seemed to have the facility. He seemed to enjoy hanging around the van lifers. And at the same same time is loved the acquisitive nature. He liked cash. He likes money. He'd thought of the idea of retiring, picked the right child. And it begins to build up quite a case around one of the key theories around the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. Tell us that key theory, which was rumbling around, but nobody really had the suspect to fit the theory. The key theory is that as a, a guy lived in the area well, knew the area very well, who burgled all the apartments and homes in the area. And we know that many British families complained about their own children being molested by so-called intruders late at night breaking into buildings all the way around this area. When we couple that with the fact that this is a convicted sex offender based just outside the village that's got a clear penchant for sexual predilection and dodgy stuff, why on earth was he not picked up? I don't know. But I want to just really finish take the words of his best friend, Michael Meacher Tatchell, who said to me, and in his only interview he's ever given on the case, Christian was always on the dark web. He would talk about going on the dark web and always insisted on having good internet in the houses he rented. I don't know exactly what he did, but I suspect it involved drugs and pornography. He was always bragging about money and making money. He even talked about selling kids maybe to Morocco. And it's for that reason that I think he probably sold Maddie to someone, maybe a sex ring. And that really was the key point for you that set you on the trail for Christian Bruckner. At that point, I was pretty certain that he was the man. And so where did the trail take you next? Well, it's fairly obvious at this point, Donald, that uh, I needed to go to Germany. I needed to go to the so-called heart of darkness, as I call it in the book and I needed to understand what created this monster and how he got away with it. To find out more about the case and what we've discussed in this episode, John Clark's book, 
My Search for Madeline is available now. Murdered Missing Unsolved is presented by me, Donald McIntyre, and produced by Inherent Productions and Steve Langridge. Music is by Alex Sane, and additional audio production by John Franklin Audio. Thank you.